The world reads from Sharjah, live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha. It is the 14th of November, which means we are on our last day of the Sharjah International Book Fair. Welcome to this very special coverage of the book fair right here, going live from Sharjah Expo Center. I cannot believe that all these days just passed by super quickly but don't worry guys today is your last chance because the book fair kicked off just five minutes ago you have 12 hours this is right 12 hours to buy all the books get the signings check out all these sessions you've got so much to do so much to fill up and also should be tuning in to us to learn all about it absolutely Aisha and if you'd like to come in and browse the over 80,000 titles at the Sharjah International Book Fair at the Expo Center Sharjah Head over to SIBF.com for info on how to register online and get your place here at the Expo Center. And uh, we've got a lot lined up on today's program. We've got a lot of sessions for today as well, virtual sessions that is. But also, Aisha, you've had a pretty interesting conversation. Yes, a couple of days ago, I actually spoke to Lang Leo. Now, I've been a fan of her since 2017. She is actually, I would attribute my... I'd say come back into reading to her. This she's her book is one of the first books I was like, okay, as you're getting back to reading, you're gonna buy her book, and this is what you're gonna kick off. And I actually bought uh, Sad Girls back in 2017, so I spoke with her, and she gave a lot of insight and a lot of interesting things. So stay tuned for that and much more right here at your live coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair with myself, Aisha Al Mazmi, Ahmed Dawood, and Ali Al Hizami. Pulse 95. The world reads from Sharjah, live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha. One of the biggest names at the Sharjah International Book Fair this year just happens to be Lang Liev. She is a poet and an author who is just fantastic. She has a whole wide range of books, again, from a collection of poetry and prose all the way to fictional novels. I spoke to her just a couple of days ago and it was, to say the least, a very insightful interview. So let's listen up. I'm here with the phenomenal Lang Liev all the way in New Zealand. Let's jump right into the question. Did you always envision yourself or saw yourself as a writer when you were growing up? Well, writing was I guess always a compulsion for me, um, you know, even from a really young age, it's um, it's something that I've always felt compelled to do. And I, I think when you're passionate about something, like I was with literature, you just eventually want to create your own. And you know, of course, my ultimate dream was to be an author. And I, I feel so lucky and fortunate that I'm now living that dream. And what made you decide on writing poetry? The common perception is that when somebody says, I am going to be a writer or I'm going to be an author. They go towards prose, they go towards fiction usually. Yeah, um, well, I, poetry is something that I fell in love with the moment I learned to read. Um, you know, it was, it was something that I was just always, always drawn to. Um, I, I remember coming across a child's book of poetry and, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was very, very young and there was a poem by Emily Dickinson that really resonated with me and um, just to quote, quote it for you now, um, it goes, a word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. I, it just had such a strong visceral effect on me. And I think it was the first time that I was able to fully comprehend the power of words. And I think that's when my love affair with poetry began. 
and did that quote itself uh, because it sounded very personal was that what well projected you towards that uh, those themes because your poems and prose in general they all vary but at the end of the day they all feel very emotional and very raw and it's show that it's from deep inside of you absolutely um i i think just at such a young age and coming across that it was I just completely had my mind blown. Um, just the way the poem twisted and the way it was done in such a short space of time, um, you know, to be able to have that mental shift um, midway through the poem. So I think that that is um, a technique that I use quite a lot in, in my own work. And since you actually you to mention that when you said that it's short and that is usually a negative criticism a lot of people have towards modern poetry when they say that it's too simple it is too it's not as intricate as say maybe some classical forms of poetry and what do you say to those people that claim that this is not real poetry I think that um, you know it's it's really arrogant to assume ownership of something that is completely universal. Language is universal; it belongs to everyone. Um, but this is something that happens over and over throughout history. I mean, most of my literary heroes were criticised or misunderstood. I mean, Robert Frost, for example, he he wrote um, in a very colloquial way, um, but you know he, he had some very prolific haters in his time. But look at how his work has endured. And I think you know, especially now because of the internet and because there is so much it, I guess it, it's like um, the era of post-truth so um, it's post-truth era that we're living in and I think there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of noise and I, I think there are often times that like I'm attributed to things I didn't write or people think my work is a certain way and the fact is I really do write a lot of um, very detailed and intricate pieces and if they were to actually you know, look a little bit deeper then, then that's what they would find. I wanted to also ask you just mentioned noise and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of noise in your head as well in terms of so many thoughts and you might write some of them down and you might not not write a lot of them down so what <laughs> constitute as something that you want to publish and something that is just you know just mind noise you just want to write it down and just shove it aside i think ideas they they come and go all the time so um i think it's it's a wholly mysterious thing as to why some take hold and some don't and i guess it just really depends you know on so many factors such as where you are when the idea finds you how you're feeling and yeah. um you know if, if you're in a position to entertain the idea it could be late at night and you're really tired so all, all these things play a role into, into whether this idea makes it into anything if it goes any further than that and i, I think for me i just tend to write down anything that excites me so it, it's very much driven by motion and i think this has a lot to do with, with intuition and it, it's something that you just learn to hone and understand over time and work with. And does that also, was that also one of the reasons why you went into fiction? Because in 2017, you published Sad Girls. Was there some sort of idea that popped into your head, maybe in the middle of the night, you just, like you just mentioned, that made you go like, I think it is time for me to go towards that area? Or was it just something you've always wanted to do alongside poetry? I've always, um, well, when I wrote, when I wrote um, my second book, Lullabies, I, I was writing longer prose pieces and um, some short stories. So I, um, a full work of fiction just seemed like a natural step for me. And it was, it, it was such a steep learning curve. I mean, it was so hard. 
but you know, I, I also loved every minute of it. I was very, very lucky to work with a wonderful man named Al Zuckman, who's my agent and he's always been a champion of my work. And he, he lectured at Yale. So he was very, he, he was very skilled and probably the perfect person for me to be able to take that step with. So it, it was just, um, yeah, it was just a, a wonderful thing. And I'm now working on my third novel and um, I'm just super, super excited about where it's going. Well, that was only half of my interview with Lang Lee, the fantastic author and poet. I continue my conversation with her in the next segment. So we're going to be taking a short break and we'll be back to chat all about that and much more right here on our live coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair. Pulse 95. The world reads from Sharjah. Live with Alia, Ahmed and Aisha. I continue my conversation with Lang Liev as she speaks to us more about her anthology series, whether it is the poetry books or the fiction or how she got into it and even the criticism she's been getting all over the world about her form of poetry. Let's continue the conversation. That's super interesting that you mentioned your third novel because I wanted to ask you about September Love that was that is your least uh, most recent book and it's a collection of poetry so I see you now jumping back and forth is it that do you have more love towards poetry does it have some sort of deeper connection within you that you keep on going back towards it and then now obviously you're also going back to fiction as well I, I think with creative people we're, we're very much in the now so um, whatever we're working on at the moment or whatever project we're focused on we're all there and we just throw all our heart and soul into that particular project so whether it's poetry whether it's fiction I've always been multidisciplinary throughout my creative life I've um I founded a a um a cult fashion label and you know I've, I've done artwork I've had my works exhibited around the world so I I think the, it's not really like a comp, it's it's not like they're really competing if that makes sense it's always about the um, project that you go with and um, you you kind of you know chase it with reckless abandon and, and you just um, stay on it and then once it's finished you kind of put it aside and it's funny because I was having a conversation with someone about exactly the same thing and how it's um by the time the body of work is finished and you're there talking about it and promoting it your head is already in a different space and you're already thinking about the new project that you know you just you've fallen in love with and that that you're working on so creativity is it, it's a very very interesting thing and especially when you're working in a commercial space it just sometimes seems a little bit um you know out of sorts but I, I i mean i love every minute of it so just you know learning as you go and trying to balance balance it all and what can you tell anybody who wants to go towards that direction of one day publishing a piece of writing or thinking about writing something in the future? How do you take all those ideas that are bouncing off the walls in your head and putting them all onto paper? I mean, the only thing you can do is to just simply do it. Just, um, you know, pick up a pen. I know it sounds really simple, but I, I think sometimes when we have these, I guess you call them bursts of inspiration, that you have a tendency to have all this self-doubt and you just think, well, you know, maybe there's nothing to it, you know, and there's that fear of what if, um, you know, nothing comes out. But you, you could really surprise yourself. And I think that's why it's, it's really important to have those tools with you, to have like a pen and paper and to be able to jot down your thoughts. Um, you know, Sometimes they might seem lackluster to you, but you could look back many years and then and see some see something in it that you hadn't before or a different way to say it. So I always say to any creative person, um, no matter what field of creativity you're in, you always have a notebook with you. 
There we have it, the interview with Lang Liev. And although the entirety of the interview was incredibly insightful, there was one part that I enjoyed a lot, which is when I asked her, what does she think of the criticism or the negative criticism against her poetry and the form of poetry? Because a lot of people would usually look at modern forms of poetry and think that, no, this is not real. That does not count as poetry, even though that over the many, many, many years, poetry has transformed in different ways. There are different ways to interpret poetry. There are different ways to be creative with poetry. So even though there is, there are classical, well-known forms, canonical forms of poetry or writing this, but there is also room for experimenting. Exactly. I wasn't necessarily a fan of mo modern poetry, but then I got to thinking that it's unfair to expect some for form of Shakespearean art from modern artists, not because they can't write it, I'm sure they can, but it's the way in which communication has changed. We mm -hmm. do not necessarily talk like that anymore. We do not communicate like that. So modern forms of poetry reflect the way in which we communicate. And to me, at the stage, I believe that whatever evokes any emotion out of you is good poetry. It, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's short, if it's long, if it's graphic, if it's just a picture and like three words, if it's moves something in you, then that is poetry. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, that's very, very important as well. The fact that it resonates with the modern reader and they feel engaged reading it as well. I've seen some really interesting forms of poetry lately. People are always pushing the boundaries. Uh, one such poet, uh, in fact, uh, looked at her Twitter account and decided that her tweets were poetry and put it all in a book. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to see how people are reinventing the uh, poetry and thinking about it in different ways. And uh, ultimately, it's about creating beautiful language that is moving to people. And just like Alia said, and that's what's happening. And especially when we talk about prose as well. When we think of prose, we think of long essays or something like a fictional novel or even non-fictional novels. But we don't think of small, short paragraphs that just throw everything within you onto a piece of paper. There are a lot of emotions invoked into several lines. And I've seen this like a, a surge of interest from people, especially on social media, now that Ahmed brought it up, mm -hmm. because especially on Instagram, I see a lot of people sharing those tiny pictures yeah. with just a sentence or two. And those sentences are super powerful. Again, even though they're so short, but just like I said, they just invoke some raw, very raw emotion, emotions and feelings from the author that the reader or the person on the social media platform can resonate with. And they say, yes, I feel that deep inside me. I'm going to repost it. So it is a very a strong form of um, showing or expressing your feelings. And I'm, get, I'm trying to feel a lot more you know, fonder of this form of writing. Less like you, I was not a big fan of modern poetry. When I first came across it a couple of years ago, I also thought, you know, no, that's not how it works. I'm not a big fan of it, especially since all of us have, are, have studied literature, English yeah. literature in university. And we have all studied, at least we are always going to go through the whole classical poetry, iambic pentameter, etc., etc., all of that. We forget about the modern forms of poetry. We are very rigid when it comes to all sorts of art, all sorts of forms of art. We just are so negatively critical. We don't give a chance to it. But when we do, we find out that it's just as beautiful as any sort of form of art. Definitely. And 
Also, we live in a day of constant uh, microblogging. So like mm. with Instagram, with Twitter, and we're so used, like we were programmed into expressing ourselves in 140 characters or less. Yeah. So I, I really, at this point, I think we shouldn't be criticizing people for what uh, the internet has pushed us to do. So we were, throughout the internet, people would avoid reading really long um, articles mm. or they would read just the headline, a couple of paragraphs and like shut it down. So we have learned to adapt and yeah. learned how to express ourselves mm. in a very concise manner. So I don't think we need to be criticized for it because that is what um, the general taste has adapted into. They want mm -hmm. something short, sweet, fast that they can really absorb and not really spend that much time dwelling on. True. Yeah, and it's something that uh, poets have even thought of for quite some time. And you brought up the classical poetry, but even way back in the 50s, 40s, 70s, People always uh, uh, looked into brevity, uh, using shorter structures, uh, putting short, concise sentences. And I think it's pretty beautiful that we have mediums today that encourage you to edit yourself. Uh, something like Twitter, for instance, it's a little more than two, 140 characters. They changed it to 240, mm. I think, or 280 yeah. characters. But still, you have to think of ways to engage people with a, a constraint and the beauty of poetry is working around constraints and not neglecting the, sh uh, the classicals as well. I think when you're very familiar with the canon and what's gone before you, you can now think of ways to reinvent and think and ways to experiment. And when you do that, it really comes off different and unique and very, very special. So it's really exciting having this conversation and meeting young poets and authors at the Sharjah International Book Fair, talking to us about how they put these uh, texts together. Yes, and if you guys want to meet more of them and check out their books, including Langliev's books, come to the Sharjah International Book Fair at the Sharjah Expo Center. Like I said, you've got around 11 hours and 30 minutes. Yes, I'm doing a countdown. We all are because this is an exciting event. We are in the middle of a pandemic, but the show must go on, and that is exactly what is happening right here in Sharjah. We're going to continue our conversations. We're going to be talking about some sessions that caught our eyes for the, from the past couple of days, what's been happening, and the topics and themes, everything all about that, right here at Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. The world reads from Sharjah. Live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha. And we're back. Sadly, it's the last day, but there's still so much uh, to catch up on. There were a lot of great events uh, throughout the conference, and we simply could not keep up. One of my uh, favorite sessions was talking about self-publishing. Uh, the sci-fi author Michael Andrew shared his formula for self-publishing success. And it, it really ties back to our uh, previous conversation where we're so lucky to live in an age where there are so many different ways that you can express yourself and put your writings out there. So you no longer need um, an agent and a publisher and this entire daunting process. There's mm -hmm. this option of going out and publishing yourself. And uh, the author, Michael, talks about how, well, yes, he did publish a couple of books for himself, but also he decided that he needs to put out at least three books in order for him to do some proper marketing. So that's really interesting to see how um, most authors would just opt to go for that one book, promote so much out of it, and then start writing the second book. So it's really interesting to see this uh, different dynamic and understanding of the publishing industry in the modern age. When I was researching the authors right when they were first announced and I came across Michael Anderley's name and I was like, let me just check out his publications. 
And I was not kidding. I was scrolling throughout oh. an entire website. It's going on and on and on. And I was super impressed because he is a sci-fi urban fantasy author. That is not something you can publish one right after the other. You need to have some sort of, you know, everything should be set out in your brain, set out on paper. And the fact that he wrote his first book from the Kutharian Gambit series on November 2nd, 2015, he then released the second book on the 11th of November and the third part of the 21 part series on the 23rd of November. So he said again, 2nd of November, 11th of November and the 23rd of November all after after each other. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. He also spoke on the power of social media. He said, I network directly with my fans uh, straight to the end user. Also spoke about learning some computer code, uh, which does come in handy. It's interesting what people are doing with self-publishing today. There are many paths towards uh, literary recognition. Ultimately, at its core, you're doing this because you're passionate about it. You want to create art. You want to get readers. Uh, so with that out of the way, if you're trying to make it in publishing, he spoke on social media in particular. And uh, one of the ways to do it is to create writing that resonates with today's culture, to have that visible online presence, to talk to people normally and say interesting things that would make people want to follow you. A lot of times people go on social media, they want to promote their books, but you browse through their social media presence and it looks like an ad. Buy my yes. book, buy my book, buy mm -hmm. my book. <laughs> Why would people listen? Uh, so you got to set yourself off. You've got to create a unique online presence. And uh, the more people follow you, they enjoy your writing, they enjoy your material that you post, they'll totally naturally gravitate towards your, your texts and whatever you put on your website. Uh, there are many different paths towards uh, recognition as well. So for instance, there are people that have online literary magazines, renowned ones at that. So there's the more traditional path of, I'm gonna submit to as many publications as possible, get my short stories out there, my poems, build enough of a, a resume that major publishers might be interested in publishing me in the future. That's the more traditional path. The other path is a lot more independent. You create your own uh, social media presence. You have a Twitter page. You're kind of funny, charming, interesting. People start to follow you more and more. You talk directly to readers and you put a link in your bio. You could buy my book if you want to and sort of build something interesting there. Uh, the options for publishing are endless. So there's Amazon Digital, for instance. Some people even have within their own website, you could read their book or they sell PDFs via other platforms. So endless options out there. But the key here is having a, a heart or, or having your finger on the pulse of the culture and engaging with people directly and just being an interesting person overall. It's not enough to say, buy my book, buy my book over and over again on social media. Don't make it mm -hmm. look like an ad. Mm -hmm. yes, I agree completely. When I first started out, I started out writing, I used to publish whatever I wrote on social media. And I noticed that, oh, people liked what I wrote. So I kept on writing more and more. So by, when the time came and I actually published my book, it was, I built that network, I built that connection. So it felt like a large group of friends coming out to support me rather than random people who used to follow me. So it's very important to engage with the reader and treat them more than just a consumer, but your friend, your family, because they are the ones who are going to stick out with you for so long. It could end up becoming their favorite author. So it's really important to think of them as more than just someone who's going to read a book, but someone who's going to be there for you uh, for a mm -hmm. lifetime and as a huge supporter. Exactly. And some of some examples of authors who are incredibly active on social media and do have some sort of conversation and a friendship with their followers is Neil, Neil Gaiman. And everybody yeah. knows him. He's well known. He's a creator of Good Omens and Norse mythology. But he is like 
he's like a big author and the fact that you see him he's talking with everybody he's chatting with them he quotes with them actually a couple of days ago somebody had taken a picture of a book from Sharjah International Book Fair he retweeted it he co-tweeted it and I felt so happy I'm like look at him he's recognizing us he's aware of us and he's aware of all these people across the entire world it's clear it creates some sort of um, connection and also creates a special bond with the author and just like Alia said it means that at the end of the day the people who are buying your book become your friends and family and not just some random people on the internet we're going to continue our conversation we're not done because there are so many sessions to talk about right here at the Shard International Book Fair right after this break you're, you're listening, listening to Pulse 95 Pulse 95 the world reads from Sharjah Live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha. We've got an elaborate lineup of uh, virtual online events available here at the Sharjah International Book Fair. And if you'd like to access any of those free sessions, head over to ShargerReads.com. And we're discussing uh, some of the ones we've attended. And I came across a pretty interesting one by Russian author Yasser Aqil and Bahraini novelist Leila Mutawa talking all about the influence of history on literature. And they spoke particularly about how history evolves over time. Additional facts come out and incidents that people had thought had gone a certain way later on would have an entirely different perception about. And they spoke about this evolution of history in relation to historical fiction. And they had a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, he most certainly did. He was talking about how it is important to take the all the historical you know, information and make sure that it is valid, it is real, and researchers be very transparent with what they find because this is a very important resource for novelists, whether they're in, within the fictional realm or the non-fiction realm because how else can they write their book? Because sometimes the, the novelists or the author themselves are not historians of any kind. They are not researchers, but they do have the research tools to look up and dig up and find something that would be relatable to what they have written. And this also goes, goes into another session called Historical Fiction Authors as they discuss challenges of merging history with fiction. Because, like I said, you do need that resource. You do need to tap into something to look back and say, where can I, what, what is happening? Because what, what is going on and how can I take this very realistic idea and not maybe tamper with it too much and also put in my story, my twist on it. And it really shows how creative the writers in that genre are because you have those concrete facts that you cannot mess with because they actually happened. Mm -hmm. But then you have that ability to play around with them or suggest alternative endings, um, maybe uh, write something that could have happened or completely imagine a brand new scenario and a brand new situation so it's definitely not hard because you will have those diehard history fans <laughs> who are like this is not what happened why are you tampering with history yeah but also it's it's just something that i genuinely appreciate because it's definitely not easy yeah and uh it, it certainly is a, a permanent balancing act as british writer miranda malins put it uh, she spoke on how she blends fiction in her historical novels and says it's pretty important because you get overlooked perspectives, ones that aren't discussed as thoroughly in history. For instance, the experience of women in 17th century England. Uh, does, does history by itself, the way it's written, the way it's composed, do it justice? Or do we need to inject some fiction in it and try to reimagine what it was like 
uh, for women at that time period so that the whole thing transcends from being mere footnotes about women in a particular setting to a lived experience of a real person uh, and uh, sort of allows the author to tap into the times a lot more. So it's really interesting the way that historical fiction authors combine reality and fiction uh, to create compelling narratives and perhaps in a way do an investigation of the human experience of those times. I think it's very necessary because how else are you going to get into the minds of your readers? How are you going to convince them that this is real if you do not somehow tap in into the actual resources, the legitimate resources, and then try to put on your twist? And what I like a lot was Azuddin. Uh, he is an Egyptian author, and he was part of this conversation. He said, I am not interested in relating history as it is. So I think this, this is where we draw the line between fiction, historical fiction and historical non-fiction because yes, historical fiction has to relay it as you know, as truthful as possible but just like Ahmed said, you need to tap into your own imagination and build a whole world because you are literally illustrating something that is something a lot of people might not have thought about or you know, never crossed their minds so it is super intricate and I believe it is super hard, it is up there with uh, creating stories in a fantastical world or something like an epic story yes i remember reading a book um it's a russian book i read the translated version in arabic and the author was basically conducting interviews with the russian woman that fought in the second world war and they were really old women they barely remembered anything and some of them had really traumatic experiences but she felt she felt it necessary to go out and record them because if she didn't they would die and no one would know the stories of those women mm -hmm. so what i appreciate about history fiction is that it could give a voice to those who are often overlooked in history it's good that this author managed to get to those women before they passed away but in a lot of instances like you mentioned mentioned with the woman in england uh, minorities in uh, colonized countries mm -hmm. you don't always get to hear their voice their experience their narrative so with historical fiction it helps you imagine what life could have been or yeah. how it was uh, how they lived their lives in that era exactly and i'm just gonna throw it out there i like telling people about my favorite book and that is historical fiction it's outlander by diana gabaldon i just speak about it when we're talking about adaptations but i think this is one of those really impressive books that takes fiction and merges it with historical fact and Guys, you should totally check it out. I'm pretty sure you can find it at the Charge International Book Fair because I did check it out and I did find it here. So check out Hall 7 at the Charge International Book Fair where you can find a whole wide array of English books. We're not done. Yes, we are only merely minutes away from the end of our last episode, last coverage of the Charge International Book Fair. But we're going to run you through for the last time through the agenda of the sessions for today that you can attend virtually. Pulse 95. The world reads from Sharjah. Live with Alia, Ahmed, and Aisha. There's so many things going on, especially today because it is the last day of the Shard International Book Fair. We have a whole list of things for you to check out at sharjareads.com where they are holding all the virtual sessions starting off with one at 1 p.m. It is super interesting because the world is reading from Sharjah so it only makes sense that even the authors come from all wide experiences and all across the world. 
for them to join here and talk about their experiences. Oh yeah, certainly, Aisha, and they speak about the way that the oral tradition uh, within their countries has influenced their writing and storytelling. That's pretty interesting. So that's going to be taking place at uh, 1 p.m. today. Yes, it is Jennifer Nansubuga Makumbi along with Sultan El Amiri, where those two novelists, one is from Uganda and one is from the UAE, they're going to be talking about their work, their influence, and how their culture has basically shaped everything. Another session that has probably started already is the one about COVID-19. Of course, the pandemic, we have to talk about it and also how many brands have tackled it. Others, including uh, writers in Jennifer's life and writing to the world. There are so many things going on. So guys, check out the seminars. They are all up at SharjahReads.com. We might have missed some of them, but this is an opportunity for you to check them out later on today. Of course, if you want to visit at, if you visit us at the Sharjah Expo Center, check out SIBF.com and register again. You have 11 hours. The countdown continues, guys. It's the final countdown. It is the final <laughs> countdown. It's not going to happen for until another year. This is your opportunity to buy all these books. And sometimes some of the publishers might have some big sales today. So this is your opportunity to take advantage of them. And with that, we say goodbye. We bid you farewell and wish you a good day. Live here from Sharjah Expo Center. Absolutely. And uh, thank you all for tuning in to our live coverage of the Sharjah International Book Fair throughout its duration. We'd also like to thank you for texting us uh, throughout. It's been amazing hearing your feedback uh, for this show. And if you missed any of our discussions or interviews with renowned authors, head over to SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Type Pulse95 Radio into the search bar. That's where all our discussions are. Uh, they're also going to be uploaded on our YouTube channel at Pulse95 Radio. Make sure you subscribe subscribe and like and comment we love reading anything you write so even though this day is ending we are still going to be talking to you across 95.0 fm goodbye have a lovely day and also stay safe and stay strong stay tuning in to pulse 95 the world reads from sharjah live with alia ahmed and aisha